From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 152 of the Killing It podcast. I had to wait a long time for that fade out. You guys are like a natural fade out there. Well, you know, we practiced it. <laughs> it's, it's becoming lyrical. All right, gents, we're going to have some fun to kick things off. Do you believe in Bigfoot? I believe that people believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of these things where uh, Bigfoots and UFOs, the photos, the fuzzy photos cease to exist as soon as everybody had a camera on their phone. And I think if Bigfoot were real, there'd be a million cell phone camera pictures by now. Well, and, and I think that this is a, a generational thing. It's more of like a point in history type of a thing, right? Uh, when the world had very large swaths of unexplored land, it made all the logical sense in the world that there were things in there we had not yet seen or encountered. But humans have trod on every square inch of the planet now, and if we were going to find him, uh, we we would have already. Now, there's still, I don't know, places out in western Washington on the peninsula that you might find some crazy things out there by forks and whatever. But uh, the one thing I, I, I strongly do not buy is the Loch Ness Monster. So <laughs> we can wait. Different story. The- uh, that's another week. <laughs> totally so so I, I have a... I have a- <laughs> I absolutely do not believe in specifically in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. However, I do not believe we have discovered all life on this planet. And I want to, I leave space for there are, there are already like a records to say there's a whole bunch of varieties of trees we haven't discovered. There's all kinds of insects we haven't discovered. And thus I leave open space for, huh, maybe there are mammals and reptiles and such as well that we have also not discovered. I do not think they walk around and look like Bigfoot <laughs> necessarily. There you Especially go. the deep trenches of the unexplored ocean. There's That's what I was going to say yeah. is there's all kinds of life down there that we don't know about. Right. Yeah. And so I leave space for there is stuff we have not found. And I want to have space for that. But do I think there's a there's Bigfoot running around in the forest near humans? Mm, probably not. Not so much. <laughs> no. But I do believe in Cisco. Did you know Cisco helps manage services providers directly know about the Cisco partner program focused on helping partners combine managed services expertise and service creation with innovative Cisco technology and proven go-to-market resources. There's a program option for you with provider pricing, MDF, and marketing resources coupled with Cisco's leading technologies, including Meraki, Duo, and Umbrella. Learn more with the link right in the show notes. Alrighty, so we have some fun topics. The first two are somewhat related, and I think both a little bit kind of like, what the hell is going on? So the, the first story that we're going to look at is it was brought to us by Nike, who is suing StockX for using their name. Okay, that sounds like an incredibly boring story, except what's going on is that there's a question about NFTs, which have been the big you know craze of the last uh, six or eight months. So StockX takes Nike shoes and puts them in a locker and then will sell you an NFT that is basically your receipt for those shoes. 
which you can then transfer to somebody else. And there's a perfect blockchain of that receipt and who owns them. So the question is, if you can change that receipt for shoes, is the NFT the shoes or is it just the receipt? And if it's just the receipt, what's the problem? Well, Nike says, you're using our name and our logo without our permission and you're not authorized to do that. So there's several layers of what is an NFT? How is it used? Why have an NFT, right? If this is just a receipt, who needs an NFT? And is that just added to the bundle just to make it a little bit sexy? It's just a, it's just a weird story with a lot of confusion in it. Well, it's funny you brought this one up because I found one which was Magic the Gathering cards that I was looking at. And Magic the Gathering, of course, the tradable games, some of the cards have scarcity put in, put in intentionally. And there is a whole market of people that trade in the cards based on the value of the cards rather than actually playing the game. And there is this open DAO to try and bring... Uh, an NFT layer to Magic the Gathering to actually explicitly track and build into the system the scarcity. And just like this, the story you just talked about, they're ignoring the IP rights around this. And Wizards of the Coast is saying exactly the same thing. Be like, wait a second, we own this stuff. You can't necessarily just, just do it. And there is this tentative link where it's, an NFT version of the card, which is designed to replicate its scarcity. <laughs> Look, see, I'll I'll go two levels on this one. Number one, as well, the three of us as humans who have spent a large chunk of our lives signing agreements to that authorize us to promote and transact other people's brands and products and intellectual property. We are very highly tuned to are you an authorized reseller or is this gray market? And, and I think that this is it's happening much sooner in the uh, in the digital products world than it did in the physical products world. But it's exactly the same challenge. There is a question not just of do I own the object or the NFT about the object, but do you own the brand rights to be able to promote and transact on that platform? Uh, I would like to introduce you to some channel lawyers if you haven't already had that conversation. And they will show you reams of a established law that will say, yeah, you do actually need to get their authorization. The, the second level that I will go to on this one is I think that there's there's a complete separation of reality in terms of not just selling the thing that's cool, but selling the cool about the thing, right? It's the sizzle versus the steak question. I can't fathom that there's yet enough of a market that would justify this argument, right? Like how many people really are there competing for that NFT? And is it really a question? Until you go back into the real world and you look at the market data that's attached to sneaker heads, right? Not just you and me buying a pair of shoes, but folks who collect them and buy first releases, right. whatever. Well, that's where I was gonna go is that the Ultimately, Nike has an interest in people collecting their shoes in the aftermarket where Nike doesn't receive any money. But the question is, does this hurt their brand? Because I got to argue it might actually help their brand. Right. So, I mean, and that's every company has to do this. But if Nike doesn't defend their copyright, they will lose it. Well, so so I'm, I'm ready to 
I've been thinking about this more and more recently. I am ready to declare my position on NFTs, and it is no fucking thanks. Like, this is a very clear... So, and I'm a collector, right? Like, so I collect things. I collect comic books. I collect video games. Like, I, I, I collect things. I understand the idea of that. I understand sneakerheads. I understand that idea. And there is a physical scarcity to this. And, by the way, I buy digital goods. I am a gamer. I buy skins. I buy uh, digital assets. I understand the value in that market too. What I'm just looking at this and saying, like this ridiculous implementation of what can only be described as a multi-level marketing scheme for me. Right. No effing thanks. I am not interested. This is this is not a true replication of a demand market, a collector market, a scarcity market, like this just does not make any sense. And the only way this makes any sense is you keep looking for more and more shills to sell your stuff to, to and that is just multi-level marketing. And there is there is a new one born, there's a new one born every day, and <laughs> as much as we know that the multi-level marketing thing is hooey, it continues to pr produce billions upon billions of dollars in revenue in what is a widely debunked model. I don't think logic is going to be the defense against NFTs because people do some seriously illogical things with their money. I think the real question is, yes, but for what, right? Like, because if you own a thing and I don't know that you own a thing, it doesn't give you not only, it not only does it not give you any functional value, but it also does not give you any brand or coolness factor, right? So the question ultimately is not going to be whether or not it's a good idea. It's how many people can know that you own that thing? Because if nobody knows, nobody cares. Right. Well, the other thing is that the, you know, last week we talked about Bitcoin and, and the being stolen and so forth and, and, and raised the question of like, who cares about Bitcoin? It's really about crypto and how we how we transact things and banks are coming up with their own currencies, which are not traded like wild, uh, you know, tulips or something. So this is a case where if you've got a digital signature and you've got a digital receipt, that's one animal uh, trying to attach it to the fact that you got a pair of sneakers in a locker. Eh, I, I think long term, it doesn't, it's just not appealing. And I don't think it's a sustainable model. I am open to smart contracts. I am open for digital records. We've talked about digital twins. Like I'm interested in all of that. NFTs, no fucking thanks. This is a scheme. This is a shill. I'm not interested. Besides Carl, what it sounds like you were just describing there is not just a pair of Nikes in a box, in a locker. It sounds like Schrodinger's NFT here. Oh, yes. there you go. Schrodinger's uh, sneakers. <laughs> is it, are they in there or are they just Well, digital? but here's the thing. So this is one thing that we didn't talk about last week, which is when your Bitcoin is stolen, it's actually your Bitcoin. Right. My Bitcoin is, is sitting right next to yours, but mine was not stolen. When you rob a bank, somebody's money is stolen. Somebody's money is gone. That's very different from, oh, sorry, Ryan, you're screwed. Well, we got your Bitcoin, right? Uh, so, so somebody could actually 
steal your sneakers even though they're still inside the locker that is a bit of a schrodinger sort of thing right, well i'm gonna move us i'm gonna move us into topic two here because i'm actually going to tell and these guys have not heard this story yet i'm going to tell I've, I've been thinking a lot about crypto and i'm trying to understand more of it right and i want to be open-minded particularly coming off a segment where i have declared no fucking thanks i, I want to make sure that i'm not rejecting a technology space and I, for me like many technologists the way to figure this out is to go do uh, I was, was I've been looking at, at the, watching the crypto market, trying to understand it, and for me there was a very simple activity that there is a uh, a, a service, the .ENS service that allows that is trying to build a DNS like model for crypto wallets, right? So that you could the ability to buy your name on the .ENS blockchain, which can then point point to your own wallet. And so they're selling it, right? And so the idea, so, so I said, you know what? This seems exactly like the activity that I should do to try and understand this. So my mission was to go off and buy davesobel.ens. And to do that, you must have a wallet. You must purchase Ethereum. You must use the Ethereum to do the transactions. I said, okay, this all feels like exactly the thing that I should do. So I went forth, okay? And the, of course, so you have to learn wallets. Okay, I get all of that. And I went through that. And here's where it got most, that was complicated more than it should be, but I got it, right? And I figured out how to do that. Where it really got me going was the, as I'm on the website, that is selling davesobel.ens. And I put in it and I say it's available and it quotes to me that it will be, $55 worth of ETH, and that includes the two years and the gas, which is apparently all the fees. As I go to do this, the price changes. Why? Because the underlying Ethereum is too volatile <laughs> to actually lock in the price. And as I continued through the process of making, because by the way, I didn't have quite enough money in my wallet then, so oh. I had to move money, right? I had to do money again. And by the time I had done that, the price had changed again to put more in this. And this essentially felt like an entire scheme to just take more of my money and put it into these ETH coins, right? Well, it's three more minutes, three more dollars to keep speaking. <laughs> Right. It's three more. Just stay on the line. The 977 number. Right. So by the time I'm done, I'm all in for like 70 or 75 dollars. Right. And moments later, it's back to the 55 dollar price just after I happen to have done this. OK, so I am now the proud owner of Dave Sobel ENS. So apparently yeah, you can, you know, you crypto people, if you want to send me money. Knock yourselves so out, right? Did, did this feel like a scam? Like, oh, I may, oh, have, I may have clicked on the wrong thing. <laughs> the whole thing of this. And by the way, like, I, and, and, you know, and by the way, crypto people, if you're going to yell at me, I get it. I understand this is a more, this is, you know, the, the, the points of this and the gassing and the, there is, but this is like the slowest, most difficult and expensive computer ever made. <laughs> and it is so volatile that no. I looked at this and said, for everybody that tells me, oh, this is like Bitcoin's the thing. It's like, if the money is so volatile that the price changes underneath the purchase, that's not the future. And, and, it, and on top of that, it was so complicated to do. 
it reminded me of the very early days of the internet when I had to learn a TCP IP stack and I had to run, you know, I had to bring the stack up to myself and I had to run the browser on top of that. And it was all this fragile thing that I had to put together to make it all work. And so I get, I actually now can say I've done a digital transaction with crypto. I have a wallet. I have done all of the pieces of it. And this is most distinctly not ready for prime time. <laughs> this is not ready for the so, market. So what's <laughs> interesting is, like, what would have made this feel good if it had said, hey, the price is probably, it could vary as much as 25%. Uh, so here's your range of an actual purchase. Do you want to go for it? I mean, because unless it's unless the volatility disappears, that particular situation will never change. Correct. And, and, and thus why I look at this and I say, the way a lot of these pieces are now, I look and say, is, does not make sense for mainstream. And, it, and anyone who's, who's sort of waving and saying like, oh, you know, these created coins will be, will be a thing. No, like real money in, in the real world is not volatile like this. Well, and, and so this is this is the thing, right? If you think about it again, there's two layers that I'm seeing jump right out of this. Number one, that kind of volatility is defined in the economic structures as a bad thing, right? Now, I get it from an investor's perspective that volatility equals opportunity and that if things are just easy and predictable, then anybody can make money or not make money and that depresses the potential for outsized gains. I get it, right? Volatility is good from an investor's slash gambler's point of view. That's fine, but it is not economically viable. I, I, I go back to, I was a 20 year old person sitting in a large, very large lecture hall at a major university in, a, in an advanced macroeconomics class where they were teaching us about the mechanisms of inflation in an economy. And they were using the case study of Eastern Europe in early World War II and the definition of hyper inflation where your money was worth one thing in the morning and radically less in the evening so grocery shopping oh, yeah. was not a predictable thing to do okay it's cool if you can strike it rich and you happen to hit red when you call red and you make a ton of money in your gamble but that is not the basis for transactions right. and until it is the basis for transactions it can't be what it claims to be which is a currency. Well, but on top of that, by the way, there's the complexity layer of you must have the wallet, you must have in installed the correct extensions, you must connect the extensions to the site. Like, there are so many pieces of this where, again, if I'm putting on my user tech, you know, the, my normal user piece, I can take my credit card out and I can do a transaction. They have they have made that process smooth in order to be adopted, and this is not that. Well, the, the, so two things come to mind for me. So one is when you think about the entire chain of, of transactions, can you imagine what it takes if somebody says, well, wait a minute, Dave, I think you have a reason to sue the company that handled this transaction because their computers were not fast enough. Remember the early days of eBay? The, it used to be that if you were close to Washington, D.C., you won all the, uh, the bids. Right, because well, let's, let's, it took time be, for, for let's packers be, let's to Let's be move. fair. 
some of the slowness is not necessarily due to them. The slowness is due to me, the user, going and learning through the process. Right? Well, no, 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 but I mean, when you click, when you say $55, click, and oh, 75, uh, what, huh, what, right? And then it goes back to 55. If you had been fast enough, if the, if the click had been fast enough. The other thing that it makes me think about is, why do people want to be paid in this stuff? Right? That's the other news story we haven't really covered is people are demanding to get some of their pay in some cryptocurrency. Uh, and it's usually Bitcoin, but it's like, oh, my God, do you want to take, say, whatever, 20 percent of your uh, revenue and say, pay me whatever you feel like at the moment? No, I want to know how much I'm being paid. <laughs> See, again, this is this is the other major thing. And you guys have both touched on it, but I think it's good to crystallize it. Technology becomes ready for mass market consumption the moment that it becomes essentially transparent to the non-skilled user, right? There once was a day that in order to own a car, you had to know how to build and service a car from a mechanical perspective. And all of us grew up in a world where in order to be in the computer world, you needed to know how to build and operate and service a computer. Those things did not attain mass market adoption until a clueless user with absolutely no training and experience could go, I want to get in and sit down and turn it on and drive that thing home. That is not where we are from, an, from a cryptocurrency perspective. And until we get to that point, I mean, Dave, you mentioned it, right? The complexity in a credit card transaction is mind boggling. You don't know it. You don't care about it. You tap your card and boom, you're done. You don't need to be an expert. And until so we get to I'll, that I'll point, end by saying like, work. I get it in terms of the potential here. What I'm observing is we are not there. We are not there by a lot because I'm thinking like, I don't know, the customer who is not interested in dealing with this level of complexity. Correct. So let's move into topic number three, and we're going to talk about the final frontier here. Um, not not the crypto frontier, but <laughs> the space frontier. And what we're talking about is, uh, you may not have actually heard about this. It was a fairly major news story. Uh, 40 satellites got wiped out of existence in space due to a solar storm. We're going to link to an article from uh, the MIT Technology Review talking about how SpaceX just lost 40 of their satellite units. And if you want to do the math on that, holy cow, you can imagine the majillions of dollars that were just wiped out. But there's this further question of, yeah, but what were they being used for and which of those services went away? So uh, given the fact that uh, a year or so ago, we talked on this program about the radical efficiency with which these companies are now launching and deploying satellites into space. There are many more of them than there have ever been. There will be more of them. What do you guys think about this question of the destroyability of our satellite network? It's a weird thing when you're at the point of an emerging technology where you can lose 40 devices the size of a car and it's just uh, an annoyance because you're going to go on and launch 44,000 more of them. <laughs> it's just, it's a weird, weird time. And, and so part of what's going on is that the sun goes through 
basically these uh, highs and lows of hyperactivity. And right now we're entering a period of hyperactivity, which will peak in about three years. So we can expect more of these low level satellites to be knocked out and, and knocked out of their orbits and they will fall to earth and melt on the way down and who knows what's gonna happen there. But it's just, it's a weird new generation we're in. And I just wanna pause and take note of that. Okay, so first I'm gonna, gonna laugh and go, well, I wouldn't say we lost them. We know exactly <laughs> where they are. <laughs> uh, but, but on a serious note, where I actually think is oftentimes we as humans don't think enough about the maintenance costs of systems. Uh, I'm going to make this very practical for everybody. Everybody, How often do you think of potholes, right? Like in terms of the, you lay a road down and the road is done, except it's not, except you need to continually go it's out never there and done. maintain it. And it's never done and it continues to do. And any of us in IT, do you just install a system and then they're never done with? No, you've got to go forth and patch it. And, make, and this is the maintenance cost of this. Now, it is astronomical when you look at a raw number perspective. Literally. Right, literally, right. <laughs> uh, but this involves, There's, I'm sure they have thought about the level of loss that they will have of these devices over time and how they get replaced. I certainly hope they have. Uh, and the, but, but we as the general consumer don't often think enough about that beyond the, oh, they put up a bunch of satellites. They must be done. Well, no, they aren't. This no, no they're, <laughs> they're not nearly done. And, and I got a very, what I perceived at the time to be a very weird education in astrophysics and solar radiation and, and the interactions. Um, at one point earlier in my career, I spent a season in the cable infrastructure industry uh, for the purpose of bringing internet and broadband connectivity via coax into the business and consumer marketplaces, right? So I worked with a company that was part of the portfolio of Paul Allen's companies where he was trying to solve the last mile. And it was back in the days of DSL versus cable. And we were all trying to figure out if you could get fiber connectivity close to you and then you could you had to put it on twisted uh, copper wires in order to get it into your home you really didn't get the benefit of all of that capacity so they had had to solve this well i was not a cable person but i was inserted into the cable industry and very soon afterwards i was put through a training program to on how to message and explain solar phenomena to the moms and dads who would call and say the picture on my tv is trash you guys suck. I need you to fix my service. And we needed at certain seasons in the year to be able to explain to them in mom and pop language. Uh, well, you know what? It's not our fault. It, it is a thing that goes on when the sun flares and it does this, all these satellites go. Now, the reason that I bring that up is that's cable television and it's annoying when it goes out. I don't think we've yet stopped to consider the degree or the portion of all the services that we depend on today or five years into the future that will be intrinsically linked to all of these tens of thousands of satellites. And when they go out, it ain't gonna be annoying. It's going to be debilitating. Well, plus these, these cycles of the sun are 11 year cycles. So imagine how much technology changes in 11 years. 
That's almost three generations, you know, complete turnover in technology. And so, you know, in the next three years, we will reach the peak of this activity. And it'll be kind of interesting to see how much of your stuff fails, you know, not the least of which would be that Apple AirTag. <laughs> see, now, Dave, we know where it is, or we used to know where it is. Now we have literally lost it. Why don't we just put air tags on the satellites? But oh, there you go. <laughs> but, but look, you know, the, the, to make this practical for everybody, again, I I think we oftentimes are dismissive of maintenance costs, and any of us that are in actually have looked at the maintenance business know that that's actually where the money is. <laughs> that's where the cost is, because. Uh, you know, even just it, just looking at implementation, right? Like implementation, the services of that, it, services is always the add-on to the, the product, but the where's the money? Maintenance. Think about car dealerships, think about our own industry of computing and technology. Uh, think about any of these, these industries, where is the bulk of the money made? It's maintenance and ongoing. And that principle, you should not lose sight of when you look at these other industries and realize, Oh, they have maintenance costs too. You know what's fascinating there, Dave? Uh, our industry has evolved to a point where we have automated and remote monitored and managed out the phenomenon of truck rolls as much as possible for, wait, I can still maintain your systems, but I don't have to physically be present. I'm not quite sure how that applies to the satellite world because a truck roll has an entirely different budget associated with it in their industry than it does in our industry. So uh, uh, when it comes to uh, your satellite got dinged and somebody needs to go up there and turn a wrench and just make sure to provide some physical maintenance to that thing. Well, we go back to Carl's earlier point of uh, we should probably just launch a new satellite. I, I, I think we're ready to have people who go up and fix satellites. I, it, this is like folk songs from the future, right? Oh, my job is to ride a rocket up into space and collect a bunch of recyclable junk, you know? Well, by the way, this is why I'm, I actually am, am intrigued by SpaceX as a business because they're in the hauling business versus your Blue Origins and uh, Virgin Galactic, which are in space tourism which I don't think is a market, but I think space hauling is a real market. And that's, you know, and th thus, you know, exactly the reason you've just done is, is, hey, sometimes you gotta put a guy up there with a wrench or you gotta send, send you gotta move things, space hauling, that's a real industry. Well, it's interesting because we have sent people up with wrenches to fix, you know, the Hubble telescope, for example, famous case. But imagine if you gotta go put that wrench to 42, thousand satellites in the network that's now, a long you, trouble ticket you, you remember that episode a few months ago where we were talking about you know technology is not eliminating human jobs it's just redescribing them <laughs> i think we just found out where oh. all of the jobs are going to go oh i'm going to create a robot that goes up into space and fixes stuff that's another whole show guys <laughs> that is another whole show, but this show sadly has come to an end. This has been episode 152 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.